This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good evening, dummies. Episode 193, July 22nd, 6.38 p.m. I just had a Chipotle burrito. I can't tell whether I, I liked it or not. I I don't like fast food. I'm not a fast food guy. I like Chick-fil-A once in a while. Chick-fil-A is good. I mean, it's not good for you. But it's better than the alternative. Um, and Chipotle, as long as you do it right, I don't put a ton of sour cream and cheese. I just do a little tiny scoop of rice. Bunch of beans, of course, which my wife, I'm sure she appreciates. No? Oh. And maybe some chicken and a little bit of salsa. And, and that's it, you know. So it's healthy somewhat. But I just got a giant one. And, oh, talk about a gut bomb. Ready to like float away or sink. Actually, not float away, sink. I went in the water right now, just right to the bottom. Anyway, folks, welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. I don't know why I'm I'm just talking about this right now. But either way, it was decent. It, it You know, on a burrito scale. There's one burrito, and let's talk about it, right? Because we've got a little bit of time tonight. Let's see. There's a Bleacher Report update. Sorry, hockey's going on, folks. A lot going on. All right. Just want to make sure there was no trades. Okay. If you're in Denver, Colorado, on Broadway in Hamden, but kind of tucked behind Broadway, it's almost the next street over, there is a place, a hole in the wall, called Taco de Mexico. That's right. No credit cards. They may take credit cards now because it's easy. But back then, it was only cash. It was like a speakeasy kind of thing. You walked in, and you had no idea that this place had the greatest burrito known to man. They would get make a carne asada, and they would have the the beef literally on a vertical spike, kind of like kebab in Middle East, where they would shave off parts of the gyro meat. And then they would proceed to whack it with a meat cleaver and just pound it into oblivion. And then they would throw it in, saute it in a a, a skillet full of butter. And then they would throw it on with the greatest refried beans ever, with the greatest rice. And they would put the pork green chili sauce on the top with chunks of pork in it. And then they would cook two over easy eggs and stick it inside the burrito. Oh, my God. I used to have two of these things. Now, this was during my, these were during my fat days, right? When I was like really, I didn't take care of myself at all. And God, I should have died. Like for 20 years, I just treated my body like crap. But anyway, these were the most fantastic burritos ever known to man. So if you're in Denver, Colorado, Broadway and Hampton, Taco de Mexico, and go and have a carne asada with two eggs with the green chili pork sauce on top. I will tell you folks, I've lived in New Mexico, been to Mexico South America, uh, California, Texas, pretty much where Tex-Mex or Mexican food is the best, no matter where it's at. Greatest burrito ever known to man. Folks, welcome to the show once again. What are we talking about tonight? It's going to be a fun show. I hope you enjoyed last episode, 192, where my daughter came on. It was fun. It was so great to have her on the show. 
uh, she is just she is a ball of, of of lightning. And the fact that all the dummies really enjoyed her uh, her guest host hosting or co piloting is really cool. I mean, she's eleven years old and she has an opinion. My son's the same way. We'll get him on too. And then my wife is fun because she gets all riled up and fired up. And whenever she gets upset by something, she'll go into the tornado or the whirlpool effect where she'll be like, those guys are just can't under why pissing me off. And you're like, okay, good, good point, I guess. But anyway, listen, folks, let's get into it. What are we going into tonight? Welcome to the show for the fifth time. A wolf among us, and they are supposed to be the shepherd. What are we talking about? Well, everyone here knows that I care about the men and women in blue, the thin blue line. I don't care if it's state, local, or federal. I really appreciate cops. My uncle was a homicide detective. That meant a lot to me. I wanted to be a cop at some point when I got out of the military, majored in criminal justice, worked with a lot of the police force in Wyoming, taught a lot of them how to shoot, and I I just surround myself with officers, and I've always cared about the blue. And tonight's not going to change that. However, my wife at work had a chance to talk to two Fairfax police officers, and they were talking about this gentleman, well, this scumbag piece of shit, not a gentleman, who did some inappropriate things with a child. And I'm going to talk about it tonight, not because I want to disparage the police officers. It's actually um, completely different than that. I think, honestly, people obfuscate and, 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 alter the message around the police force, whether it's the FBI, whether it's uh, U.S. Marshals, whether it's state troopers or, or local police, they've changed the narrative to whatever they want, and it's not true. So I still think it's important to call out bad cops, and this is close to home for me, and it's something that uh, I figured I would bring to you tonight. So let's talk about it, and I think uh, it, it's going to open up your eyes to a couple things, and that's important. The Every Child Left Behind Act. Well, I don't remember who did the No Child Left Behind Act. That was either Clinton or Bush. It doesn't really matter. I know it bled into both presidencies of some sort. But No Child Left Behind, I think it was the beginning of the end, uh, especially for the millennial generation, the trophy generation. The Everyone gets a trophy generation. But what happened to that? Seems that we have taken a year and a half away from children with the distance learning and computers and scores are in from Texas that are showing a massive decline in what children learned, retained, and were able to test out on. Honestly, most children should retake the previous grade they just left from because of these scores. And this is all over the nation. Whatever happened to No Child Left Behind? Are we using children as a political statement? We'll talk about that tonight. The new mask mandates they're talking about. Will they wear masks in fall? What does it mean for kids when they have to wear a mask to school? What's the big deal? Why don't they just put them on? We're going to go into it tonight, and I'll tell you why. I wish I could have Hayden here for this one. She told you a little bit about it last episode. And I promise this is the last time today. Joe Biden says Facebook kills people. Okay, be a little more circumspect, Joe. Speak your mind, why don't you? What do you mean Facebook kills people? I thought Facebook just stole elections without changing any votes. I thought Facebook just censored people. I just thought Facebook makes a shitload of money and advertises and steals your information and then markets to you and then pretends that they don't. Folks, Facebook is a lot of things, but are they killing people? We're going to talk about it tonight. 
And that's the great thing. And Joe Biden was very, very clear. And now he's walking it back because the last thing you want to do is to bash the arm of the DNC. We all know social media. These tech giants are in the DNC's pocket. Hence why the Hunter, Hunter Biden story never made it out. Hence why Donald Trump was silenced and muzzled, even though the last three months he probably should have been silenced and muzzled just a little bit. But the point is, is what is going on? Why is the Biden administration turning and biting the hand that feeds them? We'll go over it tonight. But first, a good joke. Not that they're not all good jokes, but this is a funny one. There are three people running from the cops. One was a brunette, one was a redhead, and one was a blonde. Eventually, they find a barn and they try to hide from the police. The brunette decides to hide in a haystack. The redhead decides to hide in a horse trough. And the blonde decides to hide in a bunch of potato sacks. When the police come by the haystack, they hear a rustle. They say, what was that? And then the girl goes, moo. And the police brush it off as a cow and move on. When they hear a sound in the horse trough, what was that? And the police brush it off as a horse and move on. When they hear a sound in the potato sacks, they turn around immediately. What was that? And then they hear potato. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Well, folks, welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. And folks, by folks, I mean dummies. The Don't Unfriend Me's. The dummies are a group and collective, but it's also a acronym. The D-U-M's. The Don't Unfriend Me's. Barstool Sports has their, has their stoolies. We have dummies. It is not a negative thing. What is negative happens to be the dum-dums. They special kinds of suckers. Led by Dusty Dinkelman, our original dum-dum, who is no longer with us. He seems to have left. He gave up. Quitter. Anyway, we're going to go over a couple things tonight, but first, before we do that, it's important to tell you where you're already watching, because if you're going to get this, you're going to know that you're either watching on Facebook or possibly listening on iTunes. I found out iHeartRadio we are on today, but all of these places you can actually follow, like, share, and subscribe. Please do that. It keeps the lights on. In fact, right here on YouTube, we'll have a little envelope. Hit subscribe so you can stay up to date. Hit like and share and follow on Facebook. It helps out a great deal. Get the word out. Help me out. Get this to your friends and family and all those other people who wanted to friend you because of my political beliefs. Folks, if that doesn't work for you, you can always... Go to don'tunfriendme.com. My website, that's right, it has all of my podcasts, my videos, and my blog, and a few other fun little tidbits. Head on over there and say hello. All right, everyone ready to get into it? Good. Let's do it. A wolf among us. I already talked about this in the intro, and I went through it quite a bit, but Fairfax County, Virginia, I live very close to Fairfax, a former Fairfax County police officer, his name was John Grimes, was indicated and not indicated, indicted. I can spell, I promise. Yeah, I'm very good at it. My name's John Grimes. I was indicated. Walked up and said, hey, man, you're going to jail. We're indicating you. Holy shit, we're off to a rough start. Officer John Grimes was indicted, yes, on Monday for allegedly engaging in a sexual misconduct with a 16-year-old girl who was part of the public safety cadet program in 2019. 
Grimes was charged with three counts of custodial indecent liberties. That's a nice way of saying that he's a scumbag piece of shit. Child toucher. I have no pity for Grimes. He took advantage of a teenager, and he did so in and out of a Fairfax County police uniform, Fairfax County Police Chief Kevin Davis said during a press conference on Tuesday. FCPD was notified of the incident back in 2019 and immediately stripped Grimes of his badge and power within the department. Quote, our department was notified of Grimes' criminal misconduct on December 13th, 2019. His crimes were revealed as he was applying for a job as a special agent with the FBI, explained Davis. Great. Give a child toucher unfettered access to the nation. I'm sure that would go over well. I'm glad they caught this son of a bitch. Chief Davis said the department revoked the ride-along aspect of the cadet program since Grimes' relationship with the minor began when he allowed her to take ride-alongs with him. Quote, we suspended that ride-along program back in 19, and if, and, uh, if and when we decide to start it again in the future, we'll make sure there are some safeguards built into it so this never, ever happens again, said Davis. Fairfax, Fairfax County's Commonwealth Attorney Steve Descano and Grimes could face up to 15 years in prison and will have to be registered as a sex offender if proven guilty. Quote, we recognize in the criminal justice system that no one is above the law, and my job as Commonwealth's attorney is to hold people accountable, and that includes whether or not someone wears a badge, stated Descano. Uh, In the earlier paragraph, the article makes it sound almost like Descano is going to be charged, too. That is incorrect. He's not. He's actually just the person who is going to be running the indictment and the prosecution. FCPD is still running a successful public safety cadet program, according to Chief Davis. The program is for 14 to 21-year-olds who have an interest in a career in law enforcement. They currently have 90 cadets serving in the program. I wonder if a few people get out of it now. Chief Davis believes it's possible there could be other victims and said the department is reaching out to parents for public safety cadets. For the average person watching the nightly news or surfing Facebook or YouTube, there is no shortage of videos depicting police officers in a negative light, and this is no different. But this isn't a national issue. They're bad cops. There's no doubt about it. They're good cops. There's good people and bad people. There's good priests and bad priests. There are no good politicians. But the whole point is this. This isn't a scar on the police department. This is a scar on the individual. They caused this. Their horrible lack of judgment, morals, and actually empathy for a child. I don't care how old she is. You have no business as a man. But what challenge does this woman present for you, this young woman? Mentally? Physically? What are you going to talk about? Britney Spears? Twilight books? I don't understand. I understand that there's a point in a man's life when they find women who are a little younger to be attractive. I know I did that when I was about 30. I married a younger woman. I robbed the cradle, so to speak. But then as my wife grew up and grew older, I started appreciating for who she is and what a beautiful MILF she is. And uh, my taste has now fallen in that arena of the 40-something group. I don't understand what men are doing dating or or not dating, raping 16-year-old girls. It is something extremely wrong with a person who takes advantage of somebody, especially in a position of power. And what you'll find is that that's probably what it is. This isn't sexual in nature. It's a dominance issue. It's a power issue. Don't let something like this impact the way you think about the police force. And I know when we see shootings, unarmed shootings, our first reaction is either defend the cop or go or defend the victim. 
In this case, when you have police officers who are absolutely 100% condemning this man, they know the truth. And for the chief of police to come out and actually make a public address about this, it's obvious that, yes, his innocence is important, but there's no way this guy's innocent. They have incontrovertible evidence against this guy. But it's important to understand is that there are people who will use this against the police officers. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a narrative that all of a sudden hits the national news that there is sex trafficking or molestations that happen on ride-along pro- programs across the United States because that's what the media does with this overarching theme in order to make police officers and other people who they disagree with look bad. It is easy, even for the best of us, to start to lose faith in our own profession, if we allow ourselves to be sucked into the vortex of what seems to be an endless litany of negative media coverage. Whether we like it or not, we live in a media-driven world in which information is shared in video clips and sound bites through social media, not to mention a plethora of news websites that are accessible to anyone with a smartphone. In our tech-driven culture, fewer people get their news from nightly TV broadcasts or newspapers instead of relying on news on feeds, blogs, and info circulated on social media. And honestly, it's kind of the same material cut from the same cloth. Whether you get it on the internet or the media, it's all the same thing. The talking heads are all in alignment. But what about the police? Why are they subject to this scrutiny? Because they weren't prepared for the scrutiny. The police community is woefully underprepared to cope with the onslaught of negativity from the public. And this is generated against the law enforcement profession exclusively. No other form of of, of employment has this amount of hatred and vitriol thrown at it. Why is this happening? I think it's because our job is and always has been pretty simple. Catch the 1% to 2% of society that preys on law-abiding citizens. And the job has never been to wage a meteor war to validate actions or convince people that cops are the good guys. This, however, is the position they find themselves in now. They are in a game of catch-up, trying to convince the public and maybe even some of their own that we aren't as bad as the media strikes us out to be. Several issues compound this problem. Because when you are considered, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but in Los Angeles, one of the most corrupt police departments in the 50s and the 60s, there was this go hug a cop, have a hot dog with a police officer. There was no community outreach. It didn't really start until the 70s. But gradually, cops became the person to run from, to hide from, to stay away from, and even getting a ticket. I remember when my dad got a ticket one time, he actually thanked the cop afterwards. That doesn't happen today. I I bet if you ask every traffic stop, every traffic cop who's performed a traffic stop, who's thanked them for anything, I bet it's zero. But here are some of the reasons. There's radical groups that advocate violence as a solution to problems between police and the community, whether those problems are real or perceived. Media that is often more sympathetic to the radical groups than to police officers. There's a tepid response at best from the nation's capital when it comes to supporting law enforcement and decreeing violence against police. We saw this with President Obama. Did more damage to the police departments than any other president in modern-day history. Millions of citizens equipped with the ability to instantly capture and edit audio and video right here and rapidly share it with news outlets or upload it to the internet sharing sites. I think the worst thing about video is that you have an edit button. If you upload something that has a police officer in it, you should upload the entire clip. 
how many times have we seen something that portrays the police doing something wrong, but if we simply would have watched the two minutes before or after, a clearer picture would have been told. And the viewpoint from rank-and-file cops based on perception or actual incidents leading them to believe they will be sacrificed on the altar of political correctness when police managers cave to political pressure. And are officers really bad? Like it or not, the news media runs on ratings. Ratings equal money, and money equals staying in business. News doesn't always have to be high quality or factual. And the first one with the story is often the ratings winner. If a news director has a five-minute slot on the 6 o'clock news and has to make a choice between running a story on a police-run toy drive or a police pursuit that ended with a bad guy getting shot, which will immediately be played out as an execution since five cops shot at the same time. Which one do you think gets the airtime? In their world, it's just business. In their minds, if they don't run with a story, a competitor will, and they can't let that happen, or they might find themselves last in the ratings race. Has the police community really gotten that bad? I don't think so. And statistics will back me up as they have many times over. 900 million police contacts a year are on record. According to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, the estimated population of the United States in 2014 was just over 268 million. This population was serviced by 12,656 cops. Those police agencies were staffed by 900,000 employees, 627,000 of whom were sworn officers. To keep things simple, let's just say 127,000, just over 20% of that number are supervisors or officers working in admin positions. This leaves us with a nice even number of half a million police first responders to police population of over 268 million. Now let's further assume that on average a police officer has five citizen contacts in a day. In reality, the number is probably higher, but we'll go on the conservative side. This could range from traffic stops to medical assists. And on a national level, this equates to 2.5 million contacts per day, 75 million contacts per month, and 900 million contacts per year. The vast majority of police citizen contacts are handled without incident, and when force must be used to gain compliance, it involves minimal to no injury in most cases. Is it a far stretch to think that out of 2.5 million contacts in one day, maybe 10,000 of those contacts involved cops who went the extra mile to ensure a positive outcome? 10,000 ways that the officers go the extra mile. I'm talking about all the extra things cop do that cops do that aren't required by the job, but they do anyway because they care. Things like shooting hoops with neighborhood kids, combining a neighborhood looking for a lost pet, combing the neighborhood, giving food or clothes to a homeless person, repairing a broken down car to get someone back on the road, paying the tab for a hotel bill so a displaced family has a place to sleep for the night, delivering groceries to an elderly shut-in or buying gifts so a needy family can have a Christmas. 10,000 out of 2.5 million contacts equate to about 1.5 of 1%. I believe this number is, in all reality, probably much higher. Considering these numbers, we find that instead of concentrating on the 10,000, the exceptionally good things the police do on any given day in America during their contact with 2.5 million citizens, we succumb to the victim mindset of a society that chooses to ignore the good in exchange for the next salacious viral YouTube video that is played and replayed, tweeted and retweeted and passed around on Facebook and Instagram until the next video showing a real or perceived misdeed by a cop surfaces. It reminds one of the, me of the old quote attributed to the communist socialist Vladimir Lenin, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. 
In this case, the lie is that police are brutal thugs that lack patience, that they're corrupt and routinely trample on the rights of citizens, or in this case of earlier, that they sexually molest people in their ride-along program. The point is that the endless cycle of negativity has a brainwashing effect that can persuade the average citizen that the police can't be trusted and given enough time can make just about anyone have doubts about themselves or their profession. Now, balance that with 120 videos. To keep yourself grounded in reality, consider this. If, on a national level, 120 negative police videos hit the airwaves in a year and we balance it against 900 million police contacts, Per year, the percentage of negativity is 0.000013%. You have a better chance of dying from COVID. This is not to say we shouldn't worry about negative press and endeavor to always do better, but doing the math helps keep things in perspective. Whether we like it or not, police nationally are engaged in a media war, and we have two choices. Stand on the sidelines and get steamrolled or get active and fight fire with fire. We have to become media specialists by default, not just police officers, but citizens, and learn to get proactive in using social media and other methods to show the positive side of police work. Maybe the next time police officers are shooting baskets, they're helping elderly across the street, they're getting the cat out of the tree, we could video that and show it. People inherently want to see the good. The reason why they are attracted to the bad is because they've been programmed. The real thing that motivates and moves people to post and share and retweet are the positive. If you don't believe that, does everyone remember some good news was done by, hell, I don't remember the guy who plays Jack Ryan. He was also in The Quiet Place. His show went viral. It wasn't special. It wasn't amazing. He just shared great stories and it went viral overnight. I don't even know if he's doing it anymore. The point is, you can look at the most powerful things on the internet, and a meme, a negative meme, has a cap and it has a limit. I learned that when I shared the powerful Dodger who saved the American flag and ran on the field and saved that flag from being burnt, Rick Monday. That went viral. Three million people interacted with that thing. I haven't had that success yet because it's positive, and some of the stuff on my site is negative. There's no doubt. So maybe I need to practice what I preach. Maybe it just doesn't start with the police. Maybe it starts with all of our dispositions. What are we known for? Being positive or pandering to the negative? There are a lot of police agencies and associations that are already starting to do this and starting to capture these moments. There are also a lot of citizens groups that support the police and are all too happy to assist in getting positive messages out there. To answer the question, no, cops aren't bad. They're just allowing a small segment of the segment of the society to use a very effective media machine to make them look that way. We all know that cops are human and can make can and do make mistakes. Some are more serious than others. We also know we work in a profession, whether it be our own personal profession or one in law enforcement, with some of the highest standards that result in constant scrutiny. I don't care if you work for Comcast, you're a lawyer, you're a dentist, or you're a ditch digger. There are always rules that you have to follow. The same holds true in the police force. But they also hold something that's very different. Complaints alleging misconduct are investigated and dealt with through administrative discipline, termination, or criminal charges. I don't think because we don't lay a proper ditch or we drill a a, a tooth improperly that they're going to get arrested or have a criminal investigation and have their lives torn apart. Police officers are under a constant threat of scrutiny and also punishment in some cases that fit the crime, but in most cases don't. What is important is that the numbers cited above 
allow officers to keep the picture in true perspective. Don't succumb to the propaganda. And more importantly, when you see the next negative video surface on YouTube, don't forget the 10,000 times or more police officers across America go above and beyond every single day. After the cry to defund the police, lawlessness is running rampant in the U.S. today. From California, forgiving shoplifters for $950 snatch and grabs, inner city shootings, attacks on citizens in broad daylight. When will it ever stop? As law-abiding citizens, you and me, most of us do not believe in vigilante justice. We respect the laws and all it entails. But when does vigilantism transition into good old-fashioned self-defense and the basic necessity for survival? I don't share this story once again to add to the drama. I want to draw a, a line of delineation, too, that bad people do bad things and good people do good things. And there is much more good in the police force than bad. And yes, you've heard the old adage, and it may seem kind of cliche and corny, that one bad apple spoils the bushel or spoils the bunch. In this case, it's not true. This man stood alone. He should be held responsible for his crimes, and he should go to jail for the rest of his life. That won't happen. But I will tell you what probably every single cop in that area would love to do is for the first time, turn off the lights, turn off the video camera, take him to a back room with a few nightsticks and really give him what he deserves. Allegedly, cops would want to do that. Every child left behind act. This week, Texas became the first state to publish a full set of student test scores for this past school year. I've been asking this for the school board in Virginia and the LCPS for a long time. I want to see what my my child's and others' child scores were. I want to see where the curve is. It's okay when they're showing me psychological profiles and they want to go ahead and put my kids on the bell curve and show me where they place nationally. Well, why can't they show me this? Because they don't want it to release. But this provides an early look at what we might expect to see across the country after over a year of pandemic schooling. The news, not good. For some subjects, test scores did not just drop, but plummeted. The Texas Education Agency, also known as T, released math and reading test results for grades three through eight, as well as high school students, and these results on multiple end-of-course assessments. As one example, algebra, algebra one assessments show that in 2021, just 41% of students met grade-level expectations, down from 62% in 2019. That's okay, I never fucking got algebra anyway. Scores also dropped for most reading assessments, but by much smaller margins. Scores for science and social studies fell somewhere in between. The size of these drops is even more startling when viewed over time. The figure that I got to see shows three years of steady growth from 16 to 19, where grade level performance grew in math and reading in grades 3 to 8 and in high school algebra 1. The pandemic wiped out those gains and then some. Yes, reading performance declines were smaller than those in math, but the earlier gains were also smaller and were also lost to the pandemic school year. And let's face it, kids read more than they ever have out of sheer boredom of being home alone. They would try anything, including sticking a fork in a socket just to see what happened with the amount of boredom that they had being locked up and confined. Reading staying relatively the same is not a surprise. That has nothing to do with the teachers and more to do with the children. For both subjects in elementary grades, however, other numbers published by TEA show that the pandemic erased the last seven years of academic progress. It's important to look closely at these results and those that come from other states to make sure declines are not overstated. Some differences between years could stem from a different population of test takers, which is particularly likely during the pandemic. If, for instance, this year's test takers were more disadvantaged, the declines would likely be overstated. Unfortunately, that does not appear to be the case. 
The number of 2021 test takers was 15% lower than in 2019, enough to bias the results if high achievers were more likely to be absent this year. However, advantaged students appear to be, if anything, overrepresented. Compared to 2019, higher proportions of gifted and talented students took the STAR test, the S-T-A-R, this year, and lower proportions of at-risk students and migrant students and Title I students took the year's test. If absent students are having an effect on these results, they are understating the pandemic damage on student learning, and it's actually worse than what the numbers are showing us. The pandemic introduced a new group of students, remote learners. That may warrant more attention this year than any other. More conventional subgroups uh, often did in the past. Indeed, T-data show the biggest drops occurred for students who spent more than more of the year learning remotely and by a huge margin. In districts that were mostly in person, at least three quarters of the year, students not meeting math grade level expectations increased by nine percentage points, nine times. In districts that were mostly remote, that increase was a whopping 32 percentage points. While all students face some degree of learning loss, students learning from home fared much, much worse. The differentials in Texas suggest ominous results will be coming from the rest of the country. T's reports show the impact of remote schooling in Texas, but does not show much more in personal schooling in Texas compared to other states. Remember, Texas was one of the first to get back. Some of the highest standards of learning are in Texas. It is a fantastic school system just about everywhere except for western Texas in El Paso, but otherwise, it's fantastic. Initial analytics of AEI's return to learn tracker data show Texas was well within the top 10 states for offering in-person instruction across the school year, meaning the fallout will be greater elsewhere because if it's to hold true, and this is not an ad pro hoc type thing, if Texas was one of the first to bring students back and they had the most in-person learning, top 10 out of all 50 states, it would probably lead us to believe that the statistics will be and the scores will be lower for people who did not embrace bringing kids back sooner. At least that's what the early numbers show. We'll find out more when they release, and I'll bring it to you. Now, there could be other good reasons to discount the importance of these declines. Perhaps students, particularly remote students, simply cared less about the tests this year. That would be cold comfort, however, as those less engaged with tests were likely disengaged with school more broadly. Another possibility is that students had less direct test prep this school year, and thus lower scores are not meaningful. I am sure that is a part of the picture, but it doesn't explain differences from remote learners. Blithely dismissing these dramatic declines is wishful thinking. Disclaimers aside, the picture in Texas is bleak. There's no sugarcoating it. If past progress is any indicator, the recovery will take years and even longer in districts that spent more time in remote learning. These flailing scores don't just reflect lost gains, but lost student potential. What is bad for Texas is likely even worse for states that spent much of the year with schools remote. These early data, this early data from Texas are likely the first in a string of devastating test score results from other states, and I'm afraid the worst reports lie ahead. Having our children wear a mask is not only a physical nuisance at best, it is a damaging thing mentally. Now, I understand that this is a far cry. Matt, why jump into masks from here? You just talked about it two nights ago. Because this is the next step. They're already talking about doing more lockdowns and shutdowns of the government again. They're saying that masks will be mandated for all kids between the ages of 2 and 12 unless they have a vaccine. Masks have an impact. And you may think it's a small thing, that it's just a nuisance, but it's not. And it's really not because of the mask itself, but more to do 
with all of the nonsense, nonsense that goes along with wearing a mask. Kids need contact. They need to play. They need to feel free. Plastic face shields, cold lunches, no sitting together on the bus, no physical contact, no high fives, and yes, no seeing and learning to interact on a social level because that is the most important thing. Mannerisms, expressions, they're very important. Several studies show that expressions and inflection are used to distinguish intent in conversation. Your smile, your frown, the furrowing of a brow, the pitch of your voice. These social skills are imperative to children at this age. And I have noticed a vast improvement with my kids' projection and confidence since taking the fucking things off. Twice as many people died in 2020 of heart disease. 700,000 people. As from COVID, 350,000 people. This doesn't even include another 159,000 who died from stroke and another 106,000 from diabetes, mostly type 2, which have the same risk factors as heart disease. While COVID-19 is an airborne disease and cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes are predominantly lifestyle and foodborne diseases, it would be wise for the CDC and HHS to put at least as much effort into preventing these chronic conditions as COVID-19. They say wearing a mask should be a choice, but I want to go one further. How about we make the right choice with the choices we have? That's not going to McDonald's. That's not stuffing six or seven Cokes down our gullet, going having high fructose corn syrup inside of our Starbucks when just a black coffee or a coffee with cream will do. Do we really need that extra large fry? Do we really need to sit on the couch and chug that six beer? Sedimentary lifestyle is killing America at a far rapid clip and the rest of the world over COVID. COVID-19 is serious, but the thing is, is COVID-19 isn't that serious without pre-existing conditions like heart disease, diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Folks, we have a choice to make. We are gluttons. We are sloths. And it is one of the original sins. We have too much of everything. And we make the wrong choices. We need to start teaching our kids how to be healthy. We need to start teaching our kids that that candy bar isn't the choice. That a piece of chicken or actually a glass of water is better for you than actually shoving more food down your gullet. Because honestly, humans eat three times a day. We are one of the only large mammals in the world that eat that much. Now you might go ahead and say, well, what about a whale? Eats a little bit all day. Listen, completely different. Until you're swimming in the ocean and you've got a a, a large open mouth and you're going after a school of sardines, Ratio to proportion, what we eat and the amount of food and the weight that we eat and the amount of money we spend on food is astronomical compared to the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, I don't see any type of whales going out and swiping their credit card at Target, picking up the local groceries, but you get my point. The point is simple. We are gluttons. We live in excess. COVID-19 would not be nearly as damaging as it was if we were in good health. If we taught our kids the right fruits and vegetables to eat, exercise and play and how to take care of their bodies. Instead, we're teaching them defense. Get the shot. Here, take this wonder pill to make you skinny. Here, wear this mask. Put some hand sanitizer in your hand. Let's not do defense anymore. Let's go on the offense and start teaching people better things about how to get healthy. So not just COVID, but the other top 10 killers that are based on choice don't wind up wiping out more great people in our country. It's time to educate. 
I promise this is the last time today. They're killing people. That was the simple Derek declaration. That was the simple, it's not so simple, is it? Declarative sentence presented by Joe Biden uttered in response to a question a reporter asked him as he left the White House on Friday. On COVID misinformation, what's your message to platforms like Facebook? The reporter had shouted as the president was walking toward Marine One. Biden turned and walked directly toward the reporter. They're killing people, he said. I mean, it really, look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated. What the? He said, and they're killing people. At her regular briefing the day before, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had explained how the administration was working with social media companies. You guys heard this on my show, including Facebook, in the hopes of getting them to adopt what she called a robust enforcement strategy against COVID-19 disinformation, which basically means censorship. Quote, can you talk a little bit more about this request for tech companies to be more aggressive in policing misinformation? A reporter asked Sucky. Has the administration been in touch with any of these companies? And are there any actions that the federal government can take to ensure their cooperation? Because we've seen from the start, there's not a lot of action on some of these platforms. Sure, Saki said. Well, first, we are in regular touch with these social media platforms. And those engagements typically happen through members of our senior staff. Here she goes. I'm going to have to circle around about that in my answer. Listening to Jen Saki talk, I just want to bang my head against a moving car. Through members of our senior staff, but also members of our COVID-19 team, given as Surgeon General Vivek uh, Murthy conveyed, this is a big issue of misinformation, specifically on the pandemic. Then she made a very specific claim, which is memorialized at 17 minutes and 30 seconds into C-SPAN online video of the briefing. You can go and see it anywhere. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation, Sucky said. I did a video on it. You can go and see that. It's probably four or five below this one. Saki went on to explain that the administration had proposed changes for Facebook and other social media companies. Quote, there are also proposed changes that we have made to social media platforms, including Facebook, and those specifically are four key steps, Saki said. The first one, she said, is that they measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform. Facebook should provide publicly and transparently data on reach of COVID vaccine misinformation. The second change the White House proposed for Facebook and other social media companies was what Sucky called a robust enforcement strategy against those who engage in COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. Second, we have recommended proposed that they create a robust enforcement strategy that bridges their properties and provides transparency about the rules, said Saki. There's about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms, Saki said. All of them remain active on Facebook, despite some even being banned on other platforms, including ones that Facebook owns. Just 12, huh? Saki, of course, didn't name these 12 people. Maybe one of them was Joe the Plumber. The next thing the White House wanted, Saki explained, was for Facebook and other social media companies to move more quickly to remove posts that are deemed harmful. By whom? The Facebook police? Third, it's important to take faster action against harmful posts, said Sucky. As all of you know, information travels quite quickly on social media platforms. Sometimes it's not accurate. And Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful, volatile, volatile posts. Posts that will be within their policies for removal often remain up for days. That's too long. The information spreads too quickly. The final thing the White House wants Facebook to do is promote what the White House calls quality information. Finally, we have proposed the promote quality information sources in their feed algorithm, said Saki. 
Facebook has repeatedly shown that they have the leverage to promote quality information. We've seen them effectively do this in their algorithm over low-quality information, and they've chosen not to use it in this case. And that's certainly an area that would have an impact. Jesus. So these are certainly the proposals, Saki said. We engage with them regularly, and they certainly understand what our asks are. Obviously, a person can make a statement about a particular subject or a false one. They can also make a statement that presents a reasonable hypothesis based on the facts or that presents an unreasonable hypothesis based on the same facts. Or they can make an unreasonable hypothesis based on no facts or on blatant falsehoods. But whatever the merits or demerits of a person's thoughts and conclusions, when they express those thoughts and conclusions, they're invariably engaging in free fucking speech. What does Biden want Facebook to do with speech related to COVID-19? As summarized by Saki last week, the administration is flagging these posts and they're spreading the disinformation, asking them to move quicker. But put this in context of a subject other than COVID-19 where human lives are also at risk. In its latest annual report, Planned Parenthood said that its fiscal year, 2019, its affiliates did 350,000 some odd abortion procedures. In a 2012 vice presidential debate with former Representative Paul Ryan, as this column has noted before, and I've said it before, Biden presented the scientific fact as if it were a religious position. Life begins at conception, Biden said. That's the church's judgment. I accept it in my personal life. On its Facebook page, by contrast, Planned Parenthood presents abortion as a form of health care provided by heroes. Abortion is an essential part of health care, Planned Parenthood said on Facebook on July 17th. Abortion providers are heroes, it said in a March 11th posting. So does Biden, who said life begins at conception, believes in his misinformation to call the deliberate taking of a human life health care. And those who do that take these lives, calling them heroes? Does he believe Facebook needs to take action against harmful posts that promote the taking of unborn lives? Of course not. And he should. But Americans have enjoyed these benefits of freedom for over 200 years. Our founders were wise enough to recognize that in order to self-govern, citizens and the press needed the ability to think independently from government influence. First Amendment to the Constitution protects this value, while censorship opposes it. If we allow any form of censoring to gain a foothold, power-hungry authoritarians will use it as a tool to gain power over our speech and our minds. The ACLU defines censorship as, quote, the suppression of words, images, or ideas that are offensive, and notes that censorship can be carried out by both governments and private organizations. We are familiar with the atrocities of the 20th century that resulted from government censorship. censorship. All of us are. And the ACLU was protecting racists and people who were using racial slurs and epitaphs. That's the ACLU. They were protecting hate speech. And this is a group which denounces hate speech, but still protects people's right to do it. But after securing victory and ending the Russian Civil War in the early 1900s, the Bolsheviks signed the decree on press to prohibit the publishing of any Burgos articles that were critical of the new government. In 1930s, Germany and the Nazi Party strictly enforced censorship to promote the circulation of propaganda that celebrated their ethnic superiority, superiority and simultaneously dehumanized the Jewish people. We now know 
that millions of Soviet citizens were sent to prison work camps known as gulags for speaking out against the government, and of course the unchallenged Nazi propaganda played a significant role in the events that led to the Holocaust. Currently, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the one that Joe Biden and his uh, government love so much, is reportedly, oh, by fuck you, LeBron James, I'm glad your film completely tanked because China wouldn't play it in their theaters. Maybe you could go suck on their proverbial tit and get a new shoe contract, you douchebag. Sorry. Is reportedly operating modern concentration camps with the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang province. The CCP denies their existence, insisting that they are re-education schools to combat extremism and to inspire loyalty to the party. Right. Few people truly know what is happening in China because the CCP has such a tight grip on the flow of information. In America, the current threat of censorship isn't coming from the federal government. Instead, it's from major tech companies, and they're using their power to limit our access to information. A 2019 Pew Research poll found that over half of Americans report getting news from social media platforms. As our sources for news and ideas grow less diverse and less reliable, our thoughts and conversations begin to shrink in breadth and depth as well. When we see influential organizations and political figures chastised or even banned from social media, It becomes difficult to maintain the courage to speak up and out against the Twitter mob. By the way, you'll never censor me, you fuckers. I get asked all the time, Matt, why aren't you banned? I ride a very fine line. I try to state facts. I investigate endlessly. I try to keep the conspiracy theory out of my show. And honestly, I think if you asked Facebook, they're probably quite relieved that there is a show that actually can say some things that are opinion, some things that are absolutely fact, and some things that are just supposition. A healthy show should have all of those. I'm not a news media guy. I'm not standing on a podium, and my influence is 20,000. I think if I was in the two millions, I probably would go the way of the Hodge twins and Ben Shapiro and be muzzled. But as of right now, it's not happening. I don't feel censored. When it comes to my business and it comes to growing this podcast, I absolutely feel throttled. My advertising, everything else, I do. But it's a level playing field. Everyone's getting throttled. You have to break through the wall. You have to break through the ceiling. That takes hard work. And I'm not going to ask for a handout from Facebook to make it easy. But what I will not handle is the censorship. And that is one thing they haven't done to me yet. Self-censorship is a particularly dangerous form of censorship because it only limits the number of ideas in the marketplace, but it also makes people fearful to ask questions. When we stop learning, we stop growing. Additionally, we also see social media platforms like Twitter performing obvious acts of speech suppression by blocking user accounts or removing content they deem a violation of their policies. A highly publicized instance of this took place in October of 2020 when the New York Post was locked out of its own account for their investigative news articles on Hunter Biden's laptop. In this case, Twitter cited a violation of its policy against sharing hacked materials. But the reality is that Twitter and other platforms have the liberty to shape their policies however however they like and place restrictions on any type of speech that is in violation of such policy. Numerous other individuals have fallen victim to Twitter's arbitrary censorship policies. And it is alarming that so many Americans are relying on social media platforms like this for their news. They are receiving curated news feeds formulated by tech executives and is influencing their perceptions, for better or for worse. And I would challenge you, if this is the only place you get your news, get the fuck off my channel. I'm not the end-all be-all. My opinion isn't the great white hope, folks. I'm not Nostradamus. I'm wrong. I'm also right. But honestly, 
it's not just my opinion. These are collective opinions. These are opinions that I've been influenced by. There's things that I've said in my show that probably are not 100% accurate. And on reflection, I try to go back and correct those. But there's no possible way 24-hour media can actually do that. By the time they're on to the next story, they're not going to go back two weeks and go and apologize for something that everyone forgot and draw more attention to it in the first place. But with that comes a lack of responsibility. I will always try to maintain responsibility. And if there's something in my show that someone disagrees with, that's great, down below. But the media isn't held accountable to that same standard. So instead, what do we do? Instead of fact-checking and holding people accountable that say that Donald Trump was behind 20 points the night of the election and then wipe the floor with Hillary Clinton, why aren't those people, why do they have jobs? Why are they the same people in 2020 who are going to be talking in 2022 and 2024? Because there's no accountability. And that's the difference. Social media and other large companies engaging in the restriction of free speech are able to rationalize their actions by claiming that an individual's right to expression ends when their speech causes offense to others. Holy shit, I should be canceled then. However, the only ethical way to combat offensive or even dangerous speech is not by silencing it, people, but by engaging with it in open debate. Even the fucking ACLU agrees. Quote, these private censorship campaigns are best countered by groups and individuals speaking out and organizing in defense of the threatened expression. Instead of working to silence our opposition, we should seek to engage with people whose views we find challenging. We must not fail to challenge speech suppression, even the suppression of speech we abhor. Censorship is nothing more than mental slavery and has no place in a nation founded on principles of freedom and justice for all. Now, does that mean we should allow people to say whatever they want? No. Should they go ahead and begin conversation with conjecture and supposition and not based in fact? Well, if they start doing that, you should still continue to try to have the conversation. I have done this with people ad nauseum. I've given them plenty of chances. And then eventually I just kick them off my page because they don't want to learn. They're there to argue and they believe what they believe. And the benefit of it is nothing. We should just go out and basically hit each other with baseball bats. It's not going to do any good. In America, we have the right to challenge each other. We have the right to say uncomfortable things. And there are repercussions for your words. We know that now more than ever. But is there really repercussions on having a different idea? And if so, why? Who decides? I made an example earlier about abortion. Would Joe Biden go ahead and say that abortion and what the right to life and the right to have an abortion or if a, a, a six-month-old in a tummy is actually a human being? Well, he believes that. Then why are they not challenging disinformation on Facebook when Planned Parenthood gets to advertise and is one of the largest advertisers on Facebook? That influences opinion. But isn't that disinformation? What happens when it's something else? What happens when it's about women's rights? What happens when it's about Christianity? What happens when it's the First Amendment? What happens when it stops happening and the voices just stop? A totalitarian system and government, the word total is in it for a reason. It's not partial censorship. It's not partial tyrannical rule. It's totalitarian encompassing the whole. And that's the scariest word in the dictionary when it comes to government. A totalitarian regime is never something that happens overnight. It is slow, it is trickling, and it's like Novocaine. Give it time, and it always works. 
Democracies have never been a success. The longest democracy outside of ours lasts 30 years. They fail because power corrupts absolutely. The Constitution of the United States is the one thing that stops that power from being unchecked and unfettered. The moment we start whittling away at it, the moment we start changing it, the moment we start altering its true meaning for the basis of more power is the day that we become a totalitarian government. What we know as a democracy or a republic no longer exists and never will again. Ask any of the governments who were once a democracy who failed, are they still around today? And the answer is no. And if we're not careful, either will this wonderful republic of the United States of America. Folks, thank you so much for your time tonight. I love that you stopped by 193. I hope you stop by tomorrow. Remember, you're a dummy just for stopping by tonight and saying hello. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you didn't, come back tomorrow. You might like it a little bit better. 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1, the Veteran Crisis Hotline. 22 veterans commit suicide a day. Traumatic brain injury, depression, anxiety are all very real, and they're horrible things. Veterans need your help. 22 a day are committing suicide. Give this number to them. If they can't make that call, reach out to me. I'll call them. I will help. Just ask. It just It's a simple thing. I've already been asked a few times since I've started this show, and I love it. Anything I can do to help. Hayden even asked, if you have a child who's struggling through the COVID thing, she has openly said, I'll get on Skype and talk to any kid in America. Listen, people need to help each other. We need to reach out. We need to go out and like borrowing an egg or you get a boo-boo and the next door mom helps you out with a kiss and a Band-Aid. The days of that, we're longing for that yesteryear. Veterans need our help too. They're tough, they're strong, but you'll be surprised at how fragile they are when they come back from overseas. If none of that works, you can reach out to donutfriendly.com up in the top right-hand corner. There's a VCL link, free of charge. Click it, you'll be connected to a VCL operator. If you are a civilian, you've never served a day in the military, VCL doesn't care. They're there to help everybody. Pick up the phone and they will get you to the right person. Folks, thanks for 193. Have a wonderful night. Have a wonderful day. Tomorrow's Red Friday. Wear something red at work and then come on the show and we'll see you tomorrow. Have a wonderful day. God bless.